0: So, we are looking at Job 1 and 2, and uh, starting this three-week little mini-series in this extraordinary book. So, let me pray and ask for God's help as as we begin our time looking at this. Father God, we thank you for this book, this book of Job, and... We know that each of us will have a different relationship with suffering in our lives right now or from the past, and we pray that with all the questions and feelings that we will have in response to the suffering that we face, and indeed the suffering in the world around us as we think of these extraordinary times that we're in. Father, we, we pray that by your spirit that, the, that these words in Job would help us to make sense of your world, of you, of Jesus, and of ourselves and our lives in such a way that we can trust Jesus and, uh, and follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Um, The novelist Virginia Woolf uh, once wrote in a letter to a friend, I read the book of Job last night. I don't think God comes well out of it. And uh, maybe you felt something similar um, instinctively after hearing those first two chapters that we've we've just read. Um, in the land of Uz, we don't know where Uz was, by the way, but we, um, we, people think it was either just to the south or to the north of Israel. But in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. Now, fearing God is Old Testament speak for holding God in high esteem, living in right relationship with him. This guy is a model Israelite. And then the camera shifts to heaven where God and Satan are having a chat. And uh, God says to him, you know, what, what are you up to, Satan? Well, you know, just wandering around God here and there. Well, look at Job, Satan. Have you seen how blameless and upright he is? Oh, yes, God, says Satan. But, you know, he only fears you. Because you have blessed him. Take away all he has and you'll see what he's really like. So uh, the Lord, Yahweh, permits Satan to do exactly that. And so the camera returns to Job, minding his own business. And uh, news comes, your oxen and your donkeys have been carried off by Sabaean raiders, and your servants have been murdered. And before the news has sunk in, another messenger adds news of the destruction of his sheep and uh, more servants, and then camels and more servants. And um, the, uh, the finally, your, your sons and daughters, Job, have been crushed to death in the house where they were having a meal. They are all dead. Well, how then does Job respond? Well, look at verse 21. He says, uh, in, the, in the words, of the, we, we heard these words in the, in the song we sang at the beginning. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, how do you feel after hearing all, all of that? Well, the, the, there's more to come. In fact, before we get to think about that, uh, back to heaven. Where have you been, Satan? Well, just mooching around, you know, ducking and diving, God. Well, look at Job, Satan. He is blameless and upright. He fears God and he shuns evil. And even after you took away all that was dear to him, He still trusts me. Ah, well, God, that's because he still has his health and his life. Strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to his face. And so once again, shockingly, God permits Satan to go out and the camera is back to Job, who is afflicted with painful sores all over his body. Well, by this point, Job's wife has had enough. So verse nine of chapter two, his wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Well, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Well, it's really quite uncomfortable reading, isn't it? How can a God who claims to be good and kind and loving permit the kind of suffering that Job experiences here? That's what we're going to try and uh, grapple with in the book of Job over the next uh, three weeks as we look at this. It seems particularly appropriate to do this in this season of coronavirus. But just note there is something specifically Christian. About this particular question that we're asking, because if you don't believe in God or you don't believe in a God who's shown himself to be loving and powerful, then why should we suffer is not really a question you have a right to ask. Richard Dawkins um, puts it well. He sums up why that is. He says in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Do you see? It's not evil. It just is. That's what he's saying. But Christians don't believe in the the blind forces of nature. We believe in a personal and loving God, and therefore we struggle deeply in the face of suffering. Sometimes people categorise the questions we have as being like being in a sports stadium. So there are people in the stands looking on and there are people playing on the pitch. So there there are those looking on whose questions may be largely intellectual. You know, can there really be a good and loving and powerful God when there's so much suffering in the world and they want to kind of explore the the metaphysics and the the philosophical kind of reasoning of why that can or can't be the case? But then there are those on the pitch whose questions are much more intensely personal and heartfelt how could the good and loving and powerful God that I believe in and that I know how could he allow this to happen to me or the people that I love why is this happening God what is going on now I know some of us will be feeling these things right now in the midst of these circumstances that that we're in whether or not because of coronavirus or whatever else, feelings of grief, of loneliness, fear, pain. Uh, others for us may, may feel like we're still more in, in, in the stands looking on and, and asking these questions more kind of intellectually. The thing is, everybody who's in the stands eventually at some point in their life will end up on the pitch. And the book of Job is the Bible's most sustained discussion and exploration of these questions, both from the perspective of those on the pitch and those in the stands. That the length of the book is something that puts people off, 42 chapters. But one of the things that we re- need to realise is that the length of this extraordinary book is part of its message. When God saw fit to give his people the book of Job, he didn't give us a pamphlet. He gave us... 42 chapters mostly poetry often hard to understand do you see there's no answers on a postcard for the question of suffering if you want to think about suffering you need to be prepared to grapple now christopher ash has written a couple of excellent books on job that. Um, have really well. One of them, in particular, has really helped me in, in my preparation. Here it is. Uh, this one here. This is more of a popular level book. He, he has also written a, a much more in-depth commentary, uh, but in both he has a clear instruction to uh, preachers and those uh, looking to kind of study and teach this book. He says, "Don't whatever you do, don't try and do Job justice in just two or three sermons." Well, sadly, I'm not able to uh, take his advice on this occasion. But if you want to get the most out of this little series of three sermons that we're going to try and do on Job over the next few weeks, I really encourage you to go away and read this book for yourself. In particular, it's next week where we're really going to deal with the kind of middle part of the book, which is chapters four to thirty seven. Um, and I'd really encourage you to try and read it over the next week to really get a flavour of what is what is going on, because we're just going to scratch the surface. But hopefully in doing this and in doing the kind of unrecommended three sermon uh, approach to the book, it will give us enough to go away and study it more for ourselves and uh, to, to learn the message of this extraordinary book. But for now, here briefly are four questions that these opening chapters of Job make us ask. Four questions that that we may ask ourselves in response to suffering on ourselves and those around us. So here's the first question. Did Job do something wrong? Did Job do something wrong? It's a pretty obvious question to ask. And I guess we may ask ourselves the, the, the same question when we or someone we love, suffers. Is this illness, this loss, this struggle that I'm going through, is it some kind of punishment for something I've done? Is it my fault? Well, we'll see next week that Job's friends, his so-called comforters, are convinced that somewhere, somehow, Job has done something wrong, and that is why all this suffering comes. What do you think is the answer to that question in respo- uh, you know, based on the readings that, that we heard? Job 1 and 2. What do you think is the answer? Has Job done something wrong? Well, here's the thing. There are three voices that really matter in the book of Job. One is the author of the book. Now, he or she is anonymous. A, a, a wise ancient Israelite is about all we can say. That, that, that's one voice that matters. The other voices in the book that matter are Job's and God's. And each of those three, the author, Job and God, each of those three is clear throughout the book that Job has not done anything wrong. He is innocent. It's emphasised again and again in, in chapter one and two. Did you hear it? So, so look with me. Chapter one, verse one. He, this man was blameless and upright. Uh, it says, but chapter one, verse 22, he does not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And again, chapter two, verse 10, same thing. And then God says it. So chapter one, verse eight and chapter two, verse three, he says he is blameless and upright. He's a man who fears God and he shuns evil. Now, we'll have to read on in the book for Job's own protestations of his innocence. And there are plenty of plenty of that to come. But even in his responses to suffering in, in, in chapter one, verse 21 and uh, chapter two, verse 10, he is intent on fearing God and not blaming Him. So, no, it is not Job's sin that has led to his suffering. It's not them going, "Ah, oh, you see, Job. What you did wrong was was this, and if you hadn't done that, none of this stuff would have happened." But because you did do that, that's why you're suffering now. It's not that. But then you might say, "Well, hang on a minute. You know, aren't all human beings sinners?" As we, you know, we, we've prayed a prayer of confession tonight. It, actually, what, what does this mean when it says Job hasn't done anything wrong? What does it mean when it says he's blameless? Because how can we say any human being is blameless? Well, the point is that blamelessness is not the same as sinlessness. So if you think of John chapter nine, where Jesus encounters the man born blind and his disciples ask him, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. And Jesus replies, well, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. In other words, there is a type of suffering, although it's, it's true that we're all sinners, but there is a type of suffering that is not tied to specific sins. We can't always say, I'm suffering because I've done this particular thing wrong, or this is focused on me because I somehow deserve it, and you know, the guy who lives next door... A woman at work, you know, that they don't deserve it because they haven't done these things. No, um, there is suffering that isn't tied to specific sin. He, and, and then, you know, of course, there is there is some suffering in life which is tied to specific sins. You know, if you break your arm breaking into a house as a burglar and, you know, you end up in hospital while well, you're suffering because of sin. But the point is, Job represents the hard case the situations where we're kind of going why is this happening it's the hard it's the hard situation to explain sometimes the innocent suffer and if that makes us uncomfortable then i think the point is that we're beginning to understand what this book of job is about So, did Job do something wrong? That's the first question. Secondly, is God not in control? Is God not in control? You see, one easy way to explain why the innocent might suffer is simply to say, well, do you know what? It's because God isn't really in control. He's all-loving and he cares deeply about his creation, but suffering, sadly, is kind of out of his control. He's chosen he, he's, he, he, some people sometimes say that he's deliberately made the world like this, a world that he cannot control, people want to say. Now, again, what do you think? Is that the picture that we get in Job 1 and 2? It's a bit more complicated than we might like, isn't it? It's made complicated by the existence of the Satan. We, we, we call him, you know, we often refer to him kind of colloquially as Satan. He is actually it's, it's a sort of title for him. It means the accuser. That's what the word Satan means. The accuser. He's a, his existence is just assumed. He, he seems to be one of the angels. And elsewhere, the Bible talks about angels who sinned and were thrown out of heaven. And Satan also called the devil. Seems to be one of those. But he's always a bit murky. We're never told exactly. He's just there. And the word Satan, uh, as I said, means the accuser. That is what he does here. He's determined to trip up God and his people. But did you notice that as much as Satan has to uh, as much as Satan is determined to accuse and that's what he wants to do, Do you notice that he has to ask permission from God to do these things? And God agrees to what Satan asks. Job is in your hands, he says to him. And there's a clear sense that although it is Satan whose hands bring about Job's suffering, nothing happens without God's permission. Nothing is outside his control. So is God in control? Well, it's it's complicated. But he's not not in control. He is in control. But that immediately leads us to a further question. Does God then cause Job's suffering? Does God cause Job's suffering? This is question number three. Does God cause Job's suffering? And this is where things are the most subtle in how the author tells us the story. As we said, it's very clearly not God's hands, but Satan's that directly bring about Job's suffering. Now, what do you think? Is there a difference between directly causing suffering and allowing somebody else to do it? We might feel that for the the sovereign God of the universe, whether he directly causes anything doesn't make any difference. you know, on the surface, at least, that there seems to be some kind of collusion, doesn't it? It's, you know, it's as if it's a sort of film and God is the president of the USA and Satan is his black ops operative. And, you know, commands are never straightforwardly given. It's a nod here. It's a wink there. Full deniability is maintained at all times. You know, if you're caught, we never spoke, that kind of thing. And what it all comes down to is that question that we so often ask in suffering. Why? It's God's motive in allowing Job's suffering that really matters. Actually, not whether or not he causes it. So he is in control. And he's allowing Satan to do these things. But the question really is why? And and the follow-on question is, is he truly good and loving? Because that's really why we're saying that. We're saying, you know, I I don't like the idea of him causing suffering because I think that that makes him not good and loving. But if he is good and loving and everything or everything we know of him from the rest of the Bible says he is, then at some level, even allowing Job's suffering must be consistent with that. Now, these are real questions. They're deep questions. They're questions you have to grapple with. They're not questions where we just click our fingers and get it. And there may be questions we have asked in similar circumstances. And at this stage, at the beginning of the book, it's more of a question than an answer. And we're going to have to keep asking the question as we go through the book. At this stage, really, this is meant to shock us. And if we feel that shock of... How can God, how can God have a meeting with Satan and agree for all this stuff to happen? If we're feeling that shock, well again, we're beginning to understand what this book is about. And that then leads us to our final question. How can an innocent believer respond to suffering? And that takes us to chapter three, which we didn't read. How an innocent believer responds to suffering remember job 's wife comes to to, 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 tell, to tell him to curse God and die and, and, and job 's initial response you might read it as a sort of stiff upper lip you know you 're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble and then we 're introduced to job 's friends and we 'll meet them um, big time next time, and they go and sit with him in silence no one saying anything at all for 7 days now it's often said that this was the best thing they did and it's when they opened their mouths that the problems started but their silence may actually be worse than that they behave as if job has actually died that's what their kind of that's what they, that's what they, their actions would imply you know tearing their robes putting dust on their heads being silent and the figures, is, of course, Job hasn't died. So it's as if you're lying ill in bed and your friends come to see you and they walk into the room. And you, there you are in bed and you're awake, but ill, but, but awake. And they walk into your room with an open coffin and they put it down next to your bed and they sit down and go, OK, guys, you know, I, I'd give it. How long do you reckon? A day? Three days? The coffin's ready. You know, when he when he goes, we'll, we'll stick him in there. It's just utter hopelessness. And so the upshot of that is even though he's got his so-called friends around him, he is utterly alone. And maybe we've known that for ourselves. And chapter three, verse one. He opens his mouth and he curses the day of his birth. So let me just read a few bits of these things and just just. Allow the, the emotion of this and the, the, the strength of it to sink in as we hear Job cry out, utterly alone. So verse three, may the day of my birth perish. and The night it was said, a boy is born. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. Then verse 11, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Verse 20, why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? And then the last verse, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. How can an innocent believer respond to extreme suffering undeserved? Well, they may well start with heartfelt, bitter lament. And maybe one of the blind spots of 21st century British Christianity is that we haven't really got much place for godly lament in the face of suffering. You know, we, we we read Job's initial responses to suffering in chapters one and two, and we think, yeah, you know, pretty good, Job. Uh, I might struggle to say these things myself and be quite so sort of cheery in the face of suffering as Job initially appears to be. But we kind of think inside our heads, you know, in the face of suffering, really, the only kind of godly acceptable response is a kind of British stiff upper lip, and we we we, we want to sort of spiritualize that and call it trusting God. The thing is often it's just a bit superficial. And we're saying one thing with our lips because we think that's what we ought to be saying. But then our hearts are broken. And our hearts are elsewhere. And and so we either do that kind of head heart distinction where we're we're, we're struggling or, or, or for some people end up sort of chucking it all in and walking away from Christianity altogether because we just think this doesn't work. But there is a third way. Job pours out his heart in lament. And the psalmists often do the same. And we, and we mustn't forget, Job is never charged with wrongdoing. Some of what Job says here may, may make us feel uncomfortable. you know, In the way that he speaks, is, you know, may, uh, I wish I'd never been born, effectively. But Job is the example of the suffering believer trying to make sense of what is going on. So this is saying to us, don't be afraid to pour out your heart in the face of distress. Don't be afraid to listen to someone else doing the same. And we'll think more about this particular aspect of it next time. But of course, as Christians, we can't think of innocent suffering without thinking of Jesus. Job's suffering here was utterly alone. And hundreds of years later, Jesus sat on the ground in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, surrounded by friends who didn't really know what to say. And the next day, he died utterly alone on the cross with a psalm of lament, Psalm 22, On his lips. And you see, that means that in the end that Christians face these deep, deep questions about suffering that we've been considering with a a slightly different perspective. Because do you ever find yourself saying to someone who's trying to help you? Well, you know, it's all very well you saying that you don't know what it's like. And maybe there are times that when we're tempted to say that to God. But here's the thing. He he does know what it's like. Job, in the end, is not just some random third-party innocent human being, you know, the object of a conversation in heaven between God and Satan. He is the, the model, the, the, the picture of what happened when God himself stepped into history and became a man. We don't understand suffering. We, we struggle to endure it. We, we don't have the answers that we would like. But does God know how that feels? Well, you bet he does. Job was alone in his suffering and his lament. And we may go through extraordinarily painful, innocent suffering today. But because of the lonely suffering of Jesus. The suffering Christian is never alone. So remember Virginia Woolf, I read the book of Job last night. I don't think God comes well out of it. Is she right? Or could it be that there are deeper things at work here, deeper things than we can possibly understand?